Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Welcome back. Welcome back, one and all, Two Tongues family. How you doing? Chris, coming at you again with another episode of the Two Tongues podcast, wrapping up a series we've been working on for a little while uh, on a book called Modes of Sentience. So this is my this is my attempt at wrapping it up. We have a uh, three chapters left in the book. I thought they went together well in ways that. Um, I didn't expect it, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that the author put them in order for a reason, but they came together well. So I think this is going to work uh, combining these last three chapters together. Um, to recap, for those people who uh, maybe haven't listened to the first few episodes, we covered a lot so far. We covered panpsychism, you know, the as an idea, really high level. We talked about its history. That was episode one. That was a lot of fun. We got introduced to a gentleman named Alfred North Whitehead, which blew my motherfucking mind. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Shirstead Hughes, for the introduction. Um, and by the way, he introduced me to other other folks who I've yet to get into, and I'm eager to, including Humphrey Davy, Sir Humphrey Davy, who we're going to talk about today. Uh, so panpsychism, and then Alfred North Whitehead. We also talked about substance versus process. So that's also a Whiteheadian uh, thing, but but. Uh, we had a, a exploration of this idea that uh, the atomic theory and the way that science looks at the world might actually be incomplete, might actually be so incomplete that it's wrong, and it's only able to get us so far because it's missing something very important, something that Alfred North Whitehead calls process. Uh, so we we dipped into that. I tried to change all of your minds, uh, all of you, all of your minds from a Western scientific paradigm to something a little bit more hippy dippy. Don't know how successful I was, but that was part of it. Um, today we're going to talk about some similar things, some related things, but we're going to get to some stuff that, um, just like any book, you know, they like to finish strong, you know. Um, when we were reading David Chalmers' Conscious Mind, he tried to do that. You know, he he was sort of egging us along the whole book, uh, telling us that there might be a um, a theory of consciousness that goes beyond uh, the physical, something that might be able to uh, uh, allow us to map or figure out more about what consciousness is. And so he he leads us up to that in his last chapter. He starts talking about that. We get kind of something like that here from Dr. Shirsted Hughes, where we get to the end and we're, we get introduced to a new, a new theory that's pretty interesting. Now, it's not Dr. Shirsted Hughes' theory. He, he uh, you know, gives credit where credit's due to the, uh, to the authors, um, but it's a really interesting perspective, and it's one, that, it's one that leans on quantum physics and 
whenever that happens, I am a fan. There's so much about quantum physics, in particular things like entanglement and wave function collapse that we've talked about. Um, uh, you know, the um, kind of the dual nature of matter um, at the quantum level. There's all these sort of mysteries about quantum mechanics and, uh, you know, the idea that panpsychism or some type of um, metaphysics that's empathetic to panpsychism might give us might give us an answer or might give us get us further along in our understanding it's really intriguing and so that's kind of where we ended up i don't want to spoil it for you because it's really interesting i don't know that i understand it really well but it's so interesting so i'm going to ask you how interesting you think it is um so anyway where where to begin uh this episode i don't want to give you too much of an intro and i don't want to give you a vocabulary lesson, but there is going to be some vocabulary that's going to come up. Um, I have no way of knowing if I'm even pronouncing the word right, because I think Dr. Shirsted Hughes invented it for the purpose. Um, Demetepsion. Uh, this is a word that we're going to see. I don't want to explain it um, because we'll do that as we read the quotes. Um, but what I, what I do want to do is tell you what I named this episode. This episode is called Tripping Through Hyperspace. Grand Unified Theory of Space and Sentience. Okay, okay, well, there you go. Um, a Grand Unified Theory of Space and Sentience. Okay, all right, well, that's what you have to look forward to. All right, so I'm going to begin this. I'm going to kick this off with a quote from the book, which happens to be a quote from somebody else. So I'm going to read you a quote of a quote, and it's something you may have heard before. It goes like this. To fathom hell or soar angelic. Just take a pinch of psychedelic. What do you think of that little rhyme, you guys? All right, so apparently that, that little phrase was published, and that's where the word psychedelic was first coined. Isn't that interesting? To fathom hell or soar angelic. Just take a pinch of psychedelic. It sounds like something from uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I love it. All right, so... Whether a panacea or a snake oil promise, this is what we're going to explore today. Okay, are psychedelics a cure-all, or are they a snake oil promise? You know, one or the other. Also, there's more to perception, to space and the cosmos, and to God itself, than can ever be experienced in its entirety. It's not going to come as a surprise to hear that coming from me. I've said that before. God is something like potentiality. I don't think there's any end to what that means. The question is, can psychedelic consciousness let us peer deeper into that potentiality? Can they illuminate our being and provide a means to transcend our current limitations? Those are some good questions. Let's find out. Called this first section, Pentology of Perception. It's a chapter title from the book, Pentology of Perception. So Dr. Shersted Hughes is going to break down perception for us for a reason, but he wants us to get, get us to understand what perception is rather than assuming we know what it is because, again, people don't often think about things very deeply, especially things that they know very well. And what turns out is you, know, you can just look at Socrates, any, any conversation Socrates has with anybody, all you have to do is ask a couple of questions to specify meaning and people are lost immediately. So what is perception? Let's talk about that a little bit. 
Perception is more than sensing because we can also be sentiently affected by things other than our environment. As an example, we perceive the objects in our dreams. All right, so this is the first quote that opens this topic up of perception. So he's saying perception is more than just looking out and sensing the world around you. And if you don't, if you don't believe that, if you think that, you know, that's nonsense, just imagine dreaming and what that's like. Aren't you having perceptions then? You bet your ass you're having perceptions then. You ever try to explain your, your dream to somebody else? They might not be rational uh, perceptions, but they're perceptions nonetheless. Visual, emotional, and all kinds of other things. So we do have perception of the world around us. But we also seem to have perception of something else, like the world within us. Right? Our dreams. And he goes on, he says, I want to distinguish five aspects of perception. So now he's going to outline these. These are all different things. Sensing, perception, what he calls ectophysical correlate, endophysical correlate, and then this, this word that I mentioned earlier that, that he sort of coined himself, dimetepsion. So these are five different types of perception, okay? Now he's going to explain it so I don't have to. He says, by sensing is meant being sentiently affected by the spatiotemporal environment. Okay, so what he's saying very simply is that to sense something is to simply be aware of something in your environment, right? You see something, you smell something, you touch something. Any of those sorts of things are going to make you aware of something existing outside of you in the environment. That's all he's saying. Sensing is like that. It's recognizing what's physically there, period. And he says, by perception is meant the qualitative type. So he's, he, he talks talking about color, scent, all those sorts of things. The things that David Chalmers called qualia, you know, those, those sorts of qualitative types of things that color our experiences, that color the, the experience of what's physically there in our environment, but they aren't exactly one and the same with the physical thing in our environment. Um, so the easiest thing to, to bring up here is something like... Um, something like the sun. You know, you can look at the sun and you can feel the heat on your skin. And it's, we talked about this in the last episode, it's not always clear to us that they're one and the same thing. Because we feel, we see something up in the air and we feel something on our skin and they don't seem to be connected, but they are. Um, And that feeling of heat, you know, that's a way for us to perceive the sun. Just like looking at it and seeing it with our eyes, you know. There are different types of perception. But the feeling part is different from the, from the you know, phys- seeing the physical object in, in space, right? The feeling part is something that's part of our conscious experience, part of, part of our subjective experience, our inner life, not, not necessarily something that's attached to an object out in the world. Okay, so that's the difference between just sensing a physical object and perceiving it because there are things... Uh, things going on within you when you when you have that sensing of a physical object that go beyond the object that are part of your mental world. And then he says, by ectophysical correlate is meant the physicality external to the perceiver. Okay, that is partly causative of the perception. So that's a fancy way of saying this ectophysical correlate is something out there in the world, something physical that's connected to the experience you're having. Okay, so maybe that's a chair, maybe that's the sun. So there is something out there 
that you sense with your body, you know, your eyes, your, your nose, whatever. You sense that, that object out there, and then you have a perception associated with it. And all three of these things are distinct and different. So we oftentimes think about seeing an object out there and, that, and, and understanding that what we're seeing is the object that's out there. No, it is not. You have a model in your mind of something that is five feet away from you or a thousand miles away from you or something that you're seeing like out in space. You look up and you see something. What you, the image you are holding in your mind is not the object. It's like a photograph of the object. It's not the object. So we have to, we have to be clear about that. that. What's physically out there that, that you know, is partly it's correlated to this experience you're having, the sensing and the perception, it's different from the sensing and the perception. That's the point he's making. Then he goes a step further, and he says that the endophysical correlate is meant, by that is meant the bodily correlate, correlates of sentience. So now he's saying that there's something internal in your body, like a brain state, let's say, that corresponds to um, uh, you know, this object in, in the world, this physical object in the world, and it's correlated to your sensing and your perception of it. But all that is a brain state, something you can measure on a, you know, on an EKG or something, something you can measure with like chemicals or electri- electricity or something. You can measure this thing happening in your brain, but that is not the same thing as the sun that you're seeing. It's something else. It's correlated with it, but it's not the sun you're seeing. It's activity in your brain. So we're breaking all this down to say there's lots of things going on when you have an experience. Lots of things going on. And they all are correlated in some ways. They're associated with one another, you know, in a sort of cause and effect or part to whole sort of relationship. Um, that, that, that's certainly the case. But there's a lot of things going on here. Sensing, perception, the physical object that's actually there, uh, this model of the object that exists inside your, your brain. Um, and then he says, then he says, uh, um, demitepsion. This is the fifth, the fifth type of sensing. He says by that is meant perceptions that are not sensings of the physical environment. So now we go back to that dream example that we started with. You can have a perception of something outside, like the sun. Or you can have a perception of something inside, like your dream fantasy world, right? That sort of thing is not the same as looking out at the material world and, and having, you know, a sensation of something. It's like going into your own being and having a sensation of something there. That's different. So all of these things are going on um, when we talk about, you know, experience. Then he adds one more. He says, he says oh, and Alfred North Whitehead, he adds something called perception in the mode of causal efficacy. And this is one of those fancy whitehead philosophical phrases that he's invented to mean, um, and uh, Dr. Schurstedt, you describes it like this, a primitive received feeling of externality. And he says, the direct causality of the environment into us, which is something that is felt. And he emphasizes that. So, this is kind of hard to understand, but um, I'll read the next quote, and then you tell, me, you tell me if this is clearer. He says, for humans, the traditional five senses are at the forefront of our perceiving. 
with this perception in the mode of causal efficacy that Whitehead talks about as generally subconscious. Okay, for us, it's subconscious. We're not, we're not exactly aware of it directly. He says, but in more primitive organisms, perception in the mode of causal efficacy is the only form of perceiving. And then he gives you an example. He says, a plant senses light, yet has no eye. Okay, so that's what I was wanting to get to. So you're trying to understand what does Whitehead mean when he says that there's this other type of perception that's called perception in the mode of causal efficacy. Okay, now the, now Dr. Shurstead Hughes is saying what that means is something like how a plant knows when it's light and when it's dark. It doesn't have any organs that senses light, you know? Of course, it's got cells, and the cells are using light for, you know, uh, making energy and all that sort of thing, chlorophyll and all that. But it has no sense at the level of, you know, the plant um, to detect when it's light or when it's not. Um, but you wouldn't argue that the plant knows, right? I mean, even a flower follows the sun across the horizon. You know that. It, it does know. So what is happening there? And so what? this is what Whitehead is pointing to. He's like, hey, we all have this feeling of a world outside of us, that we're inside of a space. And there are times in which we're aware um, of that, of being in a place, of, of, of existing with something external outside, a space outside of ourselves. And things can act on us from that space, and we can move through that space. And we feel that. We feel like we're in a place. Um, and I think that's interesting. It's going to become more important a little bit later to understand that there's something like a, a mode of perception and understanding of ourselves being in a place, in a space that is felt. Okay, now for, for, the, for the purposes of argument at this point in the conversation, we're just going to say, you know, a perception is something that's felt and that's what's meant here. But this is a kind of unusual type of perception. And the fact that they're felt is going to become important later. All right, he says, for humans, okay, we already, we already talked about this, did the traditional five senses business. Okay, he goes on, he says, a perception is a sensing and a qualial dimtept. Dimitept. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Um, what he means, what he means by that, he says, a perception is a sensing. That's a physical sensing, right, of, of the world outside, and a qualial dimtept. Remember, a dimtept is an internal sensing. It's a mental sensing, and you know, qualia just describes those those properties that are um, that exist, you know, internally, like color and, and feeling, right? All sorts of feelings. Uh, emotions and feelings. So when you have a perception, when you have an experience, um, there's a piece of it that's a physical sensing, and then there's a piece of it that's a mental sensing. That's all he's saying here. And I wonder, while we're talking about Whitehead, if if what Dr. Shirsted Hughes means by a qualial demtept, you know, that's a strange, strange phrase, uh, a mental sensing, whether that is how that's related to Whitehead's uh, description of eternal objects ingressing. You know, that's also kind of strange and hard for me to understand from the last episode, what ingressing really means. And I just wonder uh, if there is a connection between these two, these two things. That's something I'd like to ask the author. All right, so a, a, 
a perception, again, has a physical sensing and a mental sensing that's going on. And he says it's important to differentiate the action of sensing from the objects of that sensing. And that's exactly what I was trying to, to describe earlier when I was saying you look up and you see the sun, you know, or you feel the sun's, the heat from the sun on your skin. It's like, yeah, okay, that's how you know the sun is there. Those are different ways in which you know the sun is there. But those sensing, those different types of sensing, they aren't the sun. It's the only way we know the sun, right? But they aren't identical with the sun. They're only a signal that the sun is there. Something like that. That's, it's important to understand that. All right, he says, Just as we do not say that the perceiving of a cloud is the cloud, so we should not say that the perceiving of whiteness is the whiteness. The cloud is an external correlate of its being perceived and its color an internal correlate. So that's an interesting way of putting it. So, so a perception seems to be a thing, but it's not the same thing as what's being perceived, right? A, a perception is not, a, it's not the cloud that, that you're looking at. A perception is something that you have in, you know, somehow in your, in your mind, let's say, in your body and in your mind, maybe both. And the color white, let's say, is not in seeing white, right? It's not the perception of white that, that white is. It's something else, right? So we want to be careful not to make a distinction between sensing and what's being sensed. And then he's going to start twisting this logic a little bit in a strange way. He says, the cloud is an external correlate of its being perceived, so now it's like the cloud is not exactly the object. The perception becomes the object, and the cloud is correlated to the perception. Isn't that, isn't that weird? Because it's not clear which is which. We look up at the cloud and we think that the cloud sends a signal to our, to our body and our mind, and we have a perception generated of the cloud. Uh, what he's starting to say here is something the opposite, like you have a perception and this material object is the correlation to the perception, not the other way around. That's interesting. That's interesting. We're going to see more of that in a bit. But it's also important to understand that there's an external and an internal component to the object of perception. The cloud out there, the physical object out there in space, um, the impression that is made in your brain, and the... Um, uh, perception, uh, the, the mental perception of all the, the qualia, all the feels involved, you know, what does it feel like to, to experience a cloud, you know, all of those th sorts of things. There's an internal piece of the experience and there's an external piece of the experience. It's not clear that they're different, right? I mean, they, they're different, they're different perceptions, but perceptions of not, not of different things of, of the same thing. All right, he goes on, he says, existence transcends the spatio-temporal. That just means reality is, goes beyond space and time. It's, it includes more than just the physical. He says, perceptions are neither mental nor material, but they can manifest mentally as objects of perceiving and uh, uh, demitting, and as matter. Okay, so that's interesting. Perceptions can manifest as matter. That's, that's what he's saying here. 
perceptions can manifest as matter. They can, they can manifest, obviously, as um, uh, sensing and demitting, which we've already talked about. As you know, you've got this internal impression, right? When you have an experience, um, you, that that's true. But he's saying that it can also be matter. A perception can be, you know, mental qualities, but can also be matter. Mind and matter, both. That's interesting. So when he says perceptions are neither mental nor material, he's saying that they don't arise from the mind or the physical world, even though they're correlated to both. It's not that you're sensing an object which triggers a perception. It's that the perception triggers the materially manifest correlate, the cloud, the sun. So that is super, super strange and interesting. And it, and it relates to quantum mechanics. It relates to the idea of wave function collapse. Because remember, in quantum physics, they say that an object only is a, a certain object, you know, with mass, with certain mass and momentum and all that sort of, th- all that sort of thing. It's, it's a particle, let's say, only when it's observed, only when it's measured. In the meantime, it's just this potential. It's everywhere. It's, it's everything and nothing at once. That's how they describe quantum mechanics. And then when you look at that thing, that's everything and nothing at once, it collapses into a specific something. And it's something like that, that Dr. Schurstead Hughes is describing. He's saying that perhaps this this thing that we're calling perception, maybe that somehow is the, is the object. That is the important bit. And having the perception creates this material correlate, the cloud. It also, it also reminds me of the quote that I like to talk about from John Piaget when he was describing, um, you know, kids and, and develop, development and all that. And he, he basically said, uh, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that a child as they're developing their their sense of themselves slowly bit by bit through their experiences that they're also developing the sense of the world around them and that they happen simultaneously and that they're connected necessarily and the idea is that the child the child develops itself comes to know itself and the world simultaneously such that it's it's as though they themselves and the world emerge together simultaneously. And that's how we experience the world. And that's how we experience ourselves. And there's this interesting, you know, topsy turvy sort of thing that, that's trying that's trying to be explained. And I think that's exactly what um Dr. Schurstead uses getting at here, putting the emphasis on perception. All right, he says, thus do we distinguish the act that is sensing from that which is sensed. So now he's, now he's saying, remember, he was warning us not to confuse the act of sensing with, with um, you know, what's being sensed. And I think what he's saying here is that we differentiate, you know, subject and object. Because the nature of perception includes a complementary external and internal experience. And so we assume that they must be two things if they induce two distinct perceptions. So there's something like that going on. And that might be an error. You know, we talked about that before when we were in the last episode when we were talking about the the sun as an example. All right. He goes on, he says, it's a common error to say that heat is molecular motion. Okay, that's super interesting. 
It's a common error to say that heat is molecular motion. Heat is a felt perception, which can in part be caused by molecular motion. To say that heat is molecular motion is as confused as saying that happiness is a cigar. All right, so this is, this is really interesting. This is, again, an example of why you don't want to confuse or, or maybe how it's easy to confuse the act of sensing with the thing itself. So, so we know that if you have a, uh, you know, a chunk of ice and you heat it up, that it will melt and then it will boil and then the water will evaporate. And it, scientists will tell you that what's happening there is that in the, in the frozen state, the molecules in that water are barely moving at all. And when you add energy to it, uh, which is what we would feel and call heat, when you add energy to it, that those molecules are going to start moving faster and faster. That's going to cause the change of state of water from a solid to a liquid to a gas. We, we kind of understand that's, you know, you know, whatever, fifth grade science or something. We understand that. But he's saying that the molecules moving around producing this heat, that's not what's happening. It's not, it's not what's happening. It seems that way to us, but that's not what's happening. It's like molecular motion is just that. It's molecular motion. Molecules can move slow or fast. Why in the world does that have anything to do with a feeling? There's no logical reason why molecular motion should feel like anything at all, let alone as heat. He said, that's what he's saying. Heat is a felt perception, right? Heat is, what we're feeling is sort of more a part of us than a part of the object. So what does that mean? So yeah, it's correlated with molecular motion, but it's not the same thing. Heat is not the same thing as molecular motion. Heat is only, is only us sensing it, okay? It's a way for us to perceive the motion. It feels a certain way, that's interesting, but it's very, very difficult to explain. They're correlated, but they are not the same thing. One is external, one is internal, that kind of thing. And then he says, likewise, it is with vision. It's an error to say that redness is electromagnetism of a frequency between 430 and 480 terahertz. I think that's the abbreviation, THZ. He says, if there were no one to see it, the electromagnetic wave would not become the color. And inversely, we can imagine the color without the need for the electromagnetic wave. And I think that's what sold me on this, on this example. You close your eyes and you picture purple. I'm doing that right now. Can you do that? Can you picture purple? Well, it wasn't light waves in your brain, right? Your eyes were closed, right? There's no, there's no purple there, but the color's still there. So what does that mean? That means the color is not a part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's not a part of the physical world, at least not entirely. We, can't, we have to be careful not to confuse um, the sensing from what's, what's being sensed. And in this case, the color is, is not the same thing as a certain frequency of the electromagnetic spectrum. And how do you know that? Close your eyes and think of purple. That's how you know that. He says, we also realize that there can exist a far higher number of perceptions than those which we humans are privy. More colors, sounds, scents, 
perceptions of more kinds than we can ever conceive, and, and still yet experiences of types beyond perceptions, conceptions, and other common human modes of experience. He says the, the quantity of such uh, eternal ex- experiential types is infinite. Perhaps certain humans have more perceptions than others. Perhaps some chemicals can aid in our expansion thereof. All right, so that last part was a little bit, a little bit intriguing, but let me just slow down and pump the brakes for a second. All right, so we're talking now about perceptions and how um, they're more complicated than we, than we generally imagine they are. There's internal and external and all that sort of stuff we've talked about so far. Um, he's saying that maybe there are even more. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that you might have a food that's, that never existed before. Maybe we find it a fruit on another planet and we take a bite and have a flavor we've never experienced before. We can imagine that, even though it may not exist. We, we can imagine that. We can also imagine not just colors and sounds and scents different from ones we're familiar with. We can also imagine perceptions of other kinds that we have no, you know, hardware to understand, like the way that a bat uh, echolocates, or the way that animals see it, like in the um, infrared range or something, like, um, or, or like those crazy um, transhumanist people that put magnets in their fingertips so that they can feel the, uh, you know, the, the magnetic um, uh, waves or fields when they get near metal objects or whatever. There's all sorts of things that we might imagine are possible uh, in terms of perception above and beyond what we're, what we're familiar with. We can imagine, in fact, maybe an infinite range of experience and, and perception, right? So there's very likely, I mean, we already know with things like echolocation, there's already things like that, that we are close enough you know, to in our own planet to recognize that there's perception out there that we don't have. And of course, we know that there are infinite worlds out there, and maybe there's all who knows what possibility, uh, you know, that, that, they, that they might hold. Then he says, perhaps certain humans have more perceptions than others, and that's interesting. It's like you might have a, a throng of people walking down Times Square in New York all looking at the same signs and looking at one another, and some people are seeing that, that scene similarly, and some people are seeing that scene very differently. And we have no way of knowing that. Maybe some people do have perceptions or a range of perceptions that other people don't. And then he says, maybe some chemicals can aid in that process. Maybe, maybe psychedelics are going to expand the types of perceptions that are possible. Hmm, color me intrigued. All right, he says... Just as it is error to say that a color is its common ectophysical correlate, so the electromagnetic wave, for instance, so it is error to say that a color is its endophysical correlate. He says the color is what it is regardless of its physical substrate. Okay, so, so color, in this case, is, we, already know, we already proved it's not the same thing identically as an electromagnetic wave. It's also not the same thing as the thing in the physical world that is that color, right? The sun is yellow, the flower is red, the, the sky is blue. No. The color is not the same thing as the sky or the flower or the sun. It's something separate, seemingly. 
All right, so now we get to dimetepsin. Dimetepsin is a word Dr. Schurstedt Hughes coined after the Greek goddess Demeter. So maybe that would help us to pronounce dimetepsin. Um, but uh, that's how I'm going to go. So dimetepsin, if you remember, refers to perceptions that are not sensings of the physical environment. He says these are experiences that are cultivated by us. So not the world outside, but by us. So he's going to give us some examples. He says, a common mode of dimetepsin is imagination. Images appear before us, not directly caused by external physical objects. There, there is nothing imaginary about a mental image, he says. And that's true in, in a certain way. It's like you close your eyes and you imagine something. And we know it's not real in the sense that it's not physically there, but it wasn't there a second ago, and now I've made it there. It's a very godlike thing, imagination. You know, I'm staring out behind my closed eyes into infinite blackness, and I will for an image to appear, and it appears. That's pretty, pretty magical, by the way. Dimitepsin, okay? He says there's nothing imaginary about a mental image. It is something, Right? It's easy for us to say it's nothing or it's make-believe because it's not physically real, but it is mentally real. It is there. You are seeing it, right? Yes, sort of. So he goes on. He says, um, demitting is not sensing. Thus, demitting is the act of experiencing an atemporal perception. Okay, so by atemporal perception, he just means it's something that's not bound by time. And it's something like color. You know, we talked about all the qualia. Those are things that we're uh, demitting. You know, those are things that are somehow coming from us rather than from the world. And um, I can't remember if it was the episode before this or the one prior, but um, there was an interesting quote about that, about um, color being timeless, being eternal. And um, it's, it's, it's explained like, like it exists in Plato's world of forms. You know, it's like a color might appear in an object and it might appear in your, in your imagination, um, but that object will perish and, you know, you and your imagination will perish and that the color is still there. It's still possible for conscious creatures to observe a color, you know, uh, in another object, let's say, in their own minds. Um, so, so those colors don't, can never be killed or born. They're, they're eternal somehow. And this is what he's saying, that um, a dim, uh, that demitting is an experience of something eternal. And that's interesting. He says, demiteps include dreams, episodic memories, hallucinations, psychedelic mindscapes, subconscious phenomena, and other mystical states. These are all experiences that have no immediate ectophysical causes. See, there's nothing out there in the world that we're looking at when we experience a dream or a memory or a hallucination or a psychedelic experience. It's not out there. It's within. Dimitep, okay? And that's, and that's interesting, and it's, become, it's going to become important as well uh, as, we, as we push through. All right, so this brings me to the next section for today, a section I call Spinoza, Davy, and infinite attributes. All right, here we go. Were a congenially blind man to experience colors in a dream, he would not know that they were colors. 
let alone would he be able to describe them. So it is with ineffable psychedelic experiences. So that's great. He's, he's saying here, when people have psychedelic experiences and aren't, aren't able to describe them, it's like even though the experience itself was real and dynamic and complex and substantial and all that sort of stuff, they come to and can't put words to it. So it seems like everyone else to be, to be nonsense. Um, and he's, and he's saying, imagine if you were, if you were born blind and you dreamt about colors and then you woke up and tried to explain them. That is what people are, are the situation people are in when they're trying to explain a psychedelic experience. It's not that it's not real. Sometimes it's the realest of real. You know, that's how people describe mystic experience. And still, there's, it's not easy at all to, to make it, to, to explain it, uh, to give it meaning to somebody else. All right, he says, examining psychedelic phenomenology through Spinozism, Spino, Spinozism, <laughs> that's a word that Kyle Kyle always laughs. He has trouble pronouncing. I'm also uh, having trouble pronouncing. It's the uh, it's the the philosophy of uh, Baruch Spinoza. Uh, for those who remember that, so Spinozism. All right. So from there, um, examining psychedelic phenomenology through Spinozism that might provide new modes of thought for this psychedelic renaissance in which we find ourselves. By that, he's referring to um, all these breakthroughs in, in medicine and all the scientific research that's being done uh, now and has been done over the last maybe decade or so on psychedelics when it wasn't really allowed for a long time um, uh, you know, prior to that. Uh, you know, there was, it was super taboo and it wasn't something that the academic community was doing a lot of work on, so um, they are now. And so that in, in many ways, we are going through a psychedelic renaissance. So what he's saying here is, can we examine the philosophy of Spinoza uh, and, and have a basis for um, what he calls new modes of thought. Okay, so why Spinoza? I mean, I, you probably don't have to hear that from me anymore, but I'll, I'll, give you, um, I'll give you Einstein's words here because he does a better job. Einstein wrote, quote, I believe in Spinoza's God who reveals himself in the harmony of all that exists. He also said, Spinoza is the greatest of modern philosophers because he is the first philosopher who deals with the soul and body as one, not as two separate things. Interesting. Interesting. So Dr. Shirsted Hughes says, rather than admitting the two fundamental substances of reality as those of mind and matter, Spinoza posited one substance alone, which he calls both nature and God. So this is the framework uh, that, that we're going to kind of uh, be using here, uh, the philosophy of Spinoza and psychedelics. All right, so back to Spinoza. Uh, he says that um, the substance, so Spinoza's substance, what he calls nature or God, has infinite, uh, an infinite number of uh, attributes. And by attributes, he means expressions. So forms, you know, forms that God can take, you might say, or, or something like that. He's, and Spinoza says that we humans only have access to two of them, extension and thought. And by extension and thought, he really means mind and matter. Extension is matter, thought, of course, is mind. So God is something like that, something that's mind and matter, and we share those attributes with God, something like that. 
So he says, extension and thought are not two separate substances, but rather two different ways of viewing the same substance, two different ways of viewing God. So from one angle, mind, from another angle, matter. And I think the question that should be coming up here when we're talking about perceptions earlier and we were talking about there might, there might be, let's say, an infinite number of, of perceptions or, or types of perceptions over and above the ones that we're familiar with, that there might be all of this potential perception out there that we simply don't have the hardware to, to, you know, to experience, but that doesn't mean it's not there. And I think the same question is, is going to pop in your mind here. It's like if God is made up of, of an infinite number of uh, attributes and human beings are, are, are only reflective of two of them, or, and, and let's say our material world is only reflective of two of them. Might there be others? Might there be infinitely others? We're talking about God, aren't we? So, you know, it sort of makes sense that there might be infinite attributes. So I think we have the same question here we had when we were talking about perception. All right, he goes on, he says, for Spinoza, each attribute has an infinite number of modes or modifications. Okay, so he says, so, so for instance, the attribute extension has a mode that's magnesium. And the attribute thought has a mode that's um, magnanimity. So, all right, so, what he, so what he, basically what he's saying here is that uh, something like extension, which, again, we remember that as, as something like matter, that it, it comes in all different shapes and sizes, right? Now we can talk about atoms like magnesium, like helium, like gold, like any of them, right? Matter comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And then he says the same thing about thought, you know, that thought, thought comes in all, so all sorts of shapes and sizes. Maybe infinite, right? Maybe infinite. So it's kind of like, <clears throat> it's kind of like Spinoza's God is composed of infinite attributes. And those attributes are composed of infinite modes, Right, and so you get this fractal picture that comes up, uh, that comes up here. It's like infinity in action. Uh, that's one of the phrases I use when I try to describe God as a verb, and that's something that Dr. Sherstead Hughes has done in this in this book already. So I think that's interesting that this fractal picture comes up. Uh, every component made up of an infinite number of other things, and it's like, what's the difference? One infinity bleeds into the next, and it's all one thing. And that's exactly what that psychedelic fractal picture is that comes up in mystic experience. All right, he says, let us look more directly at Spinoza's metaphysics in relation to the psychedelic experience. Oh, goody. Here we go. He says, to help frame the exploration, we can generalize common categories of psychedelic experiences. Firstly, the indescribable or the ineffable. Secondly, cosmic consciousness, which is a mystical experience of being one with the universe. And then he says, by way of LSD, Alan Watts describes, and he's going to give us this one with the universe experience as described by Alan Watts. And it goes like this. The individual discovers himself to be one continuous process with God, the universe, with the ground of being, or whatever name he may use. To those who have known it, it is as real and overwhelming as falling in love. I couldn't agree more. See, that's what I would call the mystic experience. 
Now he's going to give William James' version, which is just as good, if not better. And it says this, In mystic states, we both become one with the absolute, and we become aware of our oneness. That's exactly right. I couldn't say it any better. That's exactly right. All right, once that's one type of... uh, one type of uh, uh, psychedelic experience. All right, so he goes on. He says, Spinoza argues that we humans have three kinds of knowledge. Firstly, opinions or imagination, which is simply our common daily understanding of the world. Second, there is reason through which we come to devise our science, mathematics, and logic. And thirdly, there's intuition, by which is meant a non-inferred grasping of a core essence of reality. It is an immersive, essential knowledge of the real. Okay, so intuition is always hard to talk about, and I've tried in this podcast before to talk about. But what I want to say here is that this idea that Spinoza brings up of intuition, it reminds me of Dimteption that we talked about, uh, Dimteption that we talked about earlier. Um, maybe not exactly, but it does remind me of that. Uh, of that internal type of experience. Wouldn't you say intuition is an internal type of experience? I think that's partly what he means when he says it's non-inferred. So you don't infer it from the world outside. It's something that you feel from within. And he calls it an immersive, essential knowledge of the real. So the example I like to use is if you if you walk into a dark alley and, you know, there's a, you know, a, a person there, the feeling of threat, like this in, intuited feeling of threat, it may be real, it may not be, but that's the kind of thing that comes to mind. It's like the hair standing up on the back of your neck or something. Like you get, you get an immersive, essential knowledge of the real, you know? Um, so from a psychedelic perspective, the real is a very interesting idea uh, because, again, that mystic experience seems realer than real, so it's kind of hard to... It's kind of hard to compare apples to apples, uh, but it, but you know, thinking about intuition that way does 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 help, and it, it does seem to be an internal type of experience. He goes on. He says, at its highest instance, instantiation, so intuition at its highest instantiation, Spinoza calls the intellectual love of God, the intellectual love of God. To attain this state, Spinoza tells us, is the highest joy. It is to intuit the nature of reality in its eternal form. To intuit temporality being the means through which the attributes of extension in thought are manifest. It is love, according to Spinoza, because it is joy with the knowledge of its cause. It is the means by which core reality comes to love itself through self-consciousness. All right, so there's a lot there, a lot there, but a lot of good stuff there. Okay, so there's this this thing that Spinoza calls the intellectual love of God, which he seems to think is like the highest type of intuition, and it makes sense. That is what I would call the mystic experience, becoming one with the universe. Um, you know, everything everything is imbued with with meaning, infinite meaning, and uh, everything blends together into one. And it's you're full of f- the feeling of peace and love. All of that stuff rings completely true uh, of a mystic experience. What Spinoza calls the intellectual love of God. He says it's the highest joy which is something I can attest to. Anybody who's had a psychedelic mystic experience can tell you that. 
He says it's to intuit the nature of reality in its eternal form. That part I agree with. And to intuit time as the means through which God becomes manifest. And that's interesting. I can say I can vouch for the idea that there is a feeling of uh, or a questioning of time, a feeling that time is is illusory somehow, and matter that it matter also feels illusory in a mystic experience. So I think there's a connection there to what Spinoza is saying, and it's very interesting. It makes you wonder if Spinoza had mystic experience of his own. Um, I wonder. I wonder if they were psychedelic or not. And then he says, it is love, according to Spinoza, because it is joy with the knowledge of its cause. And this, I think, is more important than you might think at first glance. You do hear people have a mystic experience who say all is love or God is love or love is is the force that kind of keeps the the universe together and moving. You know, love does, does certainly come through. But the point Spinoza is making here is that through self-consciousness, by experiencing itself, by God experiencing itself, is joyful, he says, because it's joy with the knowledge of its cause. It's like it's like you're seeking to know where you where you come from, and you don't know, and you're seeking and seeking and seeking after it. And after the hardest struggle imaginable, you come to realize the thing that you're spe- that you've been searching for is yourself. And then when you recognize that, feeling such intense joy, because it's like for me, it was a searching after God. So when I recognized in mystic experience that God and myself are not distinct things. It was incredible joy. It wasn't just that I found God, because I had. It was that I found God within myself, that I had been God all along. And it's like this laugh, it's like a laughable joy. It's like a, it's like a, it's like you're laughing and crying at the same time kind of experience. That's what he's talking about. It's like, yes, you found God. And it's been right in front of your face the whole time. And isn't that amazing? You know, that's what it's like. And I think Spinoza, I think that is spot on. He says it, it, it is the means by which core reality comes to love itself through self-consciousness. Yes, to love itself, to recognize itself. That's exactly it. And then he's going to pivot over to Sir Humphrey Davy because he talked about Spinoza's intellectual love of God in his, his book, his final book called Consolations. Um, the Latin for... for Love of God is Amor Dei, so that's what he uses. He says, Spinoza's Amor Dei. Now, this is what Davy has to say about it. He says, I saw in all the powers of matter the instruments of the deity. I saw love as the creative principle in the material world, and this love only as a divine attribute. So, when he says, I saw all the powers of matter in the inst- uh, he says, "I saw all the po- in all the powers of matter the instruments of the deity." He he's saying that there's God behind the the interactions and motions of of you know the physical world, like a will, something like that. And then he says, "I saw love as the creative principle 
Now, you can understand that. It's like when people love each other, they have sex, and sex is a generative act. It creates. Um, if somebody if somebody falls in love with a, with an idea, we call that inspiration. And people who are inspired create art, you know, songs and 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 paintings and sculptures. So love and creativity are absolutely connected. So Sir Humphrey Davy says, "I saw love as the creative principle in the material world, and that and that love as an attribute of God." And I just want to point out, uh, if you guys remember when we were talking about Alfred North Whitehead, he said something similar about creativity as, a, as an attribute of God. He actually called God the creative advance of the universe. The creative advance. That's interesting. All right, he goes on. He says, we humans have access to only two attributes of God, extension and thought or matter and mind. The number of attributes of reality, however, is infinite. Okay, so here again, we have a mirror of what we had when we were talking about perception. So we have a certain number of perceptions, a certain type of perceptions that we're familiar with, and it's possible, and we know it is, that there are other perceptions possible. Maybe an infinite number and types of, of perception. And now, now, now we're saying the same thing about Spinoza's God, that the attributes that make up God might be they might they may go beyond matter and mind. They may go so far beyond matter and mind, infinitely far. And what could that mean? It's like if if mind and matter is all that's needed to, to make the cosmos that we see and all the diversity and the expanse of, of the cosmos that, that, that we have, if that's all we needed, these two ingredients to make all of that, imagine if there were three ingredients. Imagine if there were 10. Imagine if there were an infinite number. Then what might there be? This is the question that's being asked here. Something like that. It reminds me of something I read a long, long time ago. It was about a, um, an asteroid or a meteor or something. I don't know the difference. It's about one of these things. They, they found um, evidence on an asteroid of proteins. Um, and there's only so many proteins that make up uh, matter on Earth, you know, I can't remember how many there are, but you guys know the uh, Gattaca, you know, all the the A's and C's and G's and T's and stuff that make up our DNA. They found um, many, many more proteins on an asteroid that don't exist on Earth, and it was the same kind of question that came to my mind: if all we need is, you know, whatever six or whatever, however many different protein combinations, if 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 that's what we have to work with. And with it, we have all of the diversity of life that you see on Earth. Imagine if there was double that number of, pro of proteins. What kind of mixing and matching, what kind of combinations, what kind of potential might that yield? Infinite. Who knows? And that's, that's what we're talking about here. There might be infinite perceptions. There might be infinite uh, attributes of God. And if that's the case, the potential for what could be goes so far beyond our ability to imagine that we simply can't capture it. It's unbelievable, awe-inspiring potentiality. All right, so he goes on. He says, would it be possible under the Spinoza system for a human to access another attribute beyond extension and thought? And a guy named Friedrich Pollock, he wrote this. He says, Spinoza thought it possible that new attributes might become known to us by revelation. 
by revelation. What does that mean? Okay, he says, such revelatory knowledge would be a new state of existence. So encountering a novel attribute of God would be to encounter an entirely new reality. And again, that kind of makes sense. If, if all of the world, if all of our reality is composed of basically two attributes, mind and matter, and we could suddenly access a third, what would that be like? We wouldn't recognize it as part of our world. It would, it would seem like an entirely new reality, wouldn't it? Can you, even, can you even imagine it? It would be an entirely new reality. All right, so Sir Humphrey Davy expresses the limitation um, in expressing the psychedelic state, you know, the, the difficulty to speak about it or describe it. He uses, uh, he says it like this, quote, you are now in a state which a fly would be whose microscopic eye was changed to one similar to that of a man. And you are wholly unable to associate what you now see with your former knowledge. I think that's, I think that's great. Imagine being a fly and suddenly your eyes were changed to that, that of a human. And the data coming into your little fly brain was no longer what it used to be. Something like what you and I have. You could not make any sense of it. You would be looking out at all of the same objects. You're sitting on a ham sandwich. You're sitting on a half-eaten ham sandwich with a, with a cigarette butt stuck sticking out of it, eat, eating it as a fly, right? Suddenly you have the eyes of a man and you see the sandwich and the cigarette. You would have absolutely no idea that they were the same thing you, you were just eating. You would think you were transported to another reality. And that's interesting. He's saying that's similar to what a man is like in a psychedelic experience. It's like you're looking out at a completely different reality. And the strangest part about it is, it's the same reality you already, you already knew. It's just from a different perspective somehow. You know, just like the fly sitting on the ham sandwich. He says, that is what it is like to be a fly being a man is analogous to what it is like to be a man tripping psychedelic. So the fly would be encountering an entirely new reality. A new reality concealed within the one it already knows. He goes on, he says, Davy understood that by chemical means, other states of consciousness, nay, other states of existence can be attained. Thus, through reason yields theoretical metaphysics. Psychedelics yields practical metaphysics. Therefore, to be a genuine mind researcher, one must be brave, excuse me, one must brave hell and soar angelic. So what is he saying here? He's saying, look, just like we were talking about with the fly, man takes psychedelics, looks out at the world and sees a completely different view of, of the world. One so different, it's like, it's like experiencing an entirely different reality, an entirely different existence. And he's like, look, if we can go into this experience and examine and record and, under, and better understand what this other view of reality is like, that we're going to have a more complete picture of what reality actually is. That's why, that's why he calls it practical metaphysics. It's literally going in to ourselves and getting our hands dirty, diving into the deepest mysteries with the highest stakes and trying to bring back knowledge from, from that. And in order to do that, he said, you must brave hell and soar angelic. 
there are risks to that. There are risks and rewards, obviously. So to enter psychedelic consciousness is literally to explore the untamed and unspoiled realms that lie just beyond the borders of our familiar reality. And psychonauts are like conquistadors of our own wild potentiality. Something like that. And that brings me to this next section, which I call Deeper Than Depth. Deeper Than Depth. Here we go. The inquiry into the relation between mind and matter requires revolutionary thought. To gain a greater gaze into this outer space, we will analyze space itself. What follows is a playful trip of radical speculation through hyperspace. So I love that. I love that last sentence. In fact, it's what I named the uh, named this episode after. What follows is a playful trip of radical speculation through hyperspace. So look, you know, Dr. Shirstead Hughes is going to have some fun with this now. So we've done the hard stuff. We, we got up to, to this point here. Now we want to start talking about wild speculation based on the knowledge that we've gained through the book so far about consciousness and, uh, and um, you know, what psychedelics might make possible, the nature of reality and all that sort of thing. So let's, let's get into some radical, wild speculation. All right, he says, if we close our eyes and imagine two triangles next to each other, so go ahead and do that, we can speak of their spatial properties. Thus, we are led to posit a reality of twofold space, physical space and sentient space. Okay, so there's a couple of things that come out of this that are super important and interesting. Firstly, he's saying that when you think about space, like outer space, or the space that you walk through when you go from point A to point B, space, that is something that breaks down into internal and external just like we were talking about with perception. Perceptions can be internal or external. In both cases, they're happening in a space of some kind. When you close your eyes and you imagine two triangles, they appear in a space, in, in a space of imagination, right? What he's calling a sentient space. And then you open up your eyes and you see a, you know, the pyramids at Giza, and those triangles are right in front of you in physical space. So there's physical space outside, and there's sentient space inside. In sentient space, you might call that the space of uh, demiteption, right? That, that's, those are those internal perceptions, where those internal perceptions happen. Okay, so for, for, uh, for now, just, just kind of keep in mind when we're imagining two triangles, they do seem in our imagination to have a relation to each other, a spatial relation. One is next to the other, one is on top of the other, one is overlapping the other. There is space in our imagination. All right, he goes on, he says, sentient space... Again, that, you might call that the space of demiteption. Includes imagination, psychedeliscapes, and the space of dreams. And Alfred North Whitehead put it this way. He said, a dream world is nowhere at no time, though it has a dream time and a dream space of its own. And it absolutely does. And, and I think that, that paints the picture perfectly, perfectly clearly. A dream is not something that exists in physical space or time, but it certainly does have a space and a temporal, you know, structure in your dream. There's a dream space. That's part of this sentient space of your imagination that we're talking about, the space of demiteption. 
right, he says, it is sufficient for our purposes to show that there, there exists perceptual space, so you might call that the realm of dimitepsion, distinct from extrin- extrinsic physical space, which you might call the realm of sensing. You know, you're, you're sensing those objects out there versus, you know, objects inside. He says, further, there are spaces and properties which we can conceptualize yet not visualize. So a little bit different. It's not like we're closing our eyes and visualizing two triangles. There are things that we can conceptualize but not visualize. All right, so we need an example. He says, for instance, we can easily conceptualize four-dimensional space. Though a fourth dimension, uh, though a fourth dimension um, orthogonal to our traditional three can be conceived, it is very difficult to visualize. So, so I mean, I, I guess the the thing that comes to my mind is this example of just a you. You're a three dimensional person, and you draw like a little stick figure cartoon, and that's a two dimensional representation. Um, you can imagine if you could put your consciousness in the stick figure on the two dimensional paper. Um, they would he, that they would have no ability to conceptualize a third dimension. They would have no way of understanding, you know, in a picture what it's like to be me in the third dimension. All they they're limited to these two dimensions, and so conceptually very limited. So what he's saying is that it's possible for you to imagine it, a, a third dimension to be possible if you're a if you're a cartoon, or for you and I to imagine a fourth dimension to be possible, even though we can't exactly come up with a visual representation of it. That's all he's saying. So this dimitepsion space, the space of our imagination and dreams, it's, it's, it goes even a step further than that. It goes into the real darkness, you know. When you close your eyes and you have that darkness, and you imagine triangles and suddenly there's something in the darkness, imagine you go past those triangles deep, deep into the darkness, so deep you can't even visualize what it is you're trying to conceive, and, and yet you can't argue that there's a conception there, that's what he's talking about. That's how deep dimitepsion goes. All right, he says, consider the fact that there can exist conceptual spaces which we can never, which we have never considered. That's good. Consider that there might be conceptual spaces. Like I just said, if you try to imagine a fifth dimension or something, but you've never considered it before. Okay, he says, as undiscovered universals, they have an objective existence with the status of possibility rather than actuality, as they exist not in our sentient minds and thus not in our physical brains. All right, so this is hard to understand and really interesting, and it makes me think of Plato's world of forms. Um, you know, that we talked about eternal objects from Alfred, Alfred North Whitehead. They're kind of the same thing. Um, something like this. It's like... Um, an unknown concept can exist, you know, in potential, let's say, prior to it being experienced or even conceptualized in a brain or in a mind. So where does it exist then? You know, if it's not in the mind and it's not in the brain, like the body, where does it exist? A concept. And all he's saying here is, like, look, there's this, there's this reality of potentiality that's hard to pin down. But you can say with some logical you know, certainty that there are conceptual spaces that you haven't yet considered that you might one day. And to say that they don't exist until you, until you conceive of them is sort of wrong. You know, potentiality does exist. And these conceptual spaces do exist. But how they exist 
is really hard to understand. It's like the way that, that I was talking about visualizing triangles in your mind and then going beyond them to, 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 to conceptualize something that can't be visualized. Where is the concept? You're, you're behind your closed eyes staring into the deep blackness of, of your imagination. You're conceptualizing dimension five, but no, nothing visual comes to mind because you have no references for it. So where is the concept? You got no details. You got no reference. But it's there. But where? This is the world of forms, the world of eternal objects. You know, this is, um, the, uh, Immanuel Kant calls it the, the noumena, the, the things, in, things in themselves, the world as it, as it is, uh, all by itself. There's something like that that is somehow inaccessible to us. And we try to describe that by, by phrases like the world of forms. That's just, I'm still, I'm still contending with that idea. It's very interesting. All right, he says, visual perception itself takes many forms. Its major division is between the direct ocular sensation of the extrinsic world, that's seeing, you know, seeing the world out there, and dimiteption, imagination, dreams, hallucinations, psychedelic experience, etc. So visual perception is going to kind of break down into seeing the outside or, you know, having an experience of images uh, in your mind. He says the direct visual perception of extrinsic space is a representation of the actual physical space. So we must differentiate the representation from the represented. So you, we keep hearing this over and over again. You remember we were talking about perception. He said you have to be careful to separate the act of sensing from the sensed itself. And here he's saying you have to be careful to differentiate the representation from what's being, from what's being represented. And this is the idea. When you look out at the world, that snapshot you have is a model of the world. It's a representation of the world. It's not the world itself. It's not what it actually is. It's just this model or image or photograph that you have of it in your, in your mind. And we're just going to remember that that picture we have in our mind is not the same thing as what's really out there. So that, that's why we, we call it representational. You know, we, we're, it doesn't feel that way to us, our day-to-days. You know, we're walking around, interacting with the world and with each other, and the truth is we don't know really what we're interacting with. We're, we're only interacting with a model, with a representation of the things that are out there. What's really out there behind those representations, behind those symbols, is anybody's guess. And that's what he's going to say next. He's going to say, what objective physical space actually is, is itself an ongoing, vast inquiry. Nobody knows what space really is. And by space, I mean outer space. But I also mean all the other spaces we've been talking about. You know, the realm of dimiteption, the, the space that you have in your imagination when you close your eyes and imagine things, what's that space? What about the conceptual space and the deep, deep dark? What about that? What's that? When I look up at the, at the expanse of space where all the stars and planets are floating magically, what the fuck is that? And that might sound like a dumb question. The truth is it's not a dumb question because our best and brightest scientists today still can't tell you what space is. And the best example I can give you is a quote from a guy named Robert Dykroff, uh, works for the um, Institute for Advanced Studies. He's a physicist and he says, I'm going to paraphrase here, but he says his sort of best guess about what space is. He says that it's it's actually an interaction 
between entangled quantum particles. That's what he says. The space that you and I move around in is just a interaction as a part of this process that we call entanglement, that we don't exactly understand either. But when two quantum particles are created in the same event or impacted by the same quantum event, that they, that they become linked and that their states will become linked. So if you change one, the other one changes instantly. It's like they're one thing. And Robert Dykreff, one of the one of the best and brightest physicists on planet Earth, says that the stuff that we call space, that we walk around in, that we see the heavenly bodies suspended in, that stuff might actually just be an interaction of of quantum particles. It might just be a byproduct of entanglement. What does that mean? <sighs> Your guess is as good as mine, but it's amazing. All right, he says. It is sufficient here simply to emphasize the threefold distinctions among perceptual space, conceptual space, and physical space. Whatever physical space might be, might, may be. So we, we know that's sort of up in the air. We just, we just want to make it clear that there's these, these different types of spaces that we can talk about. Which brings me to my next section, which is called, But What Kind of Space is Outer Space? All right, here we go. All right, we're going to talk about Immanuel Kant to open this up. He says, Kant's transcendental idealism explains that space and time are pure forms of intuition that exist in our minds as molds, as it were, that shape incoming sensations spatially and temporally. So what is he saying here? He's saying Kant, Kant believed that space and time were... Filters, I would call them. They're filters through which incoming sensations are given a, a context, spa spatial and temporal context. It's like they're limited by space and time, which is what he means when he calls them molds. It's like they're boundaries that you're stuffing them into. Space and time are like boundaries that you're stuffing something, you know, boundaryless into. You know, you're putting something unknowable into a box so that you can know it somehow. That's that's what's happening. That's what Kant is trying to describe. And I and I wonder if this is the same thing that uh, Dr. Shersted Hughes said that um, Henri Bergson was describing when he came up with this idea of a reducing valve. He's like consciousness is something like infinite and terrible and powerful and um, completely incapable of being comprehended unless it's unless it's dialed back you know you got to dial the power back you got to you got to close that reducing valve so there's only a little bit coming out so we can deal with this thing that consciousness is this vast terrible you know uh, power and that's kind of what Kant is saying He's saying we've got we've got sensations we don't know what's behind those sensations exactly we don't know what the objective world is but what we know is that it's that's unknowable to us until it gets shoved in this mold that we call space and time. And that does seem to be what Bergson was talking about when he described uh, consciousness as a reducing valve. And, um, you know, psychedelics is potentially something that opens that valve. So space and time, according to Kant, are pure forms of intuition that exist in our minds as molds. Interesting. He says, our minds are spatial molds that when filled present physical space. 
and when empty, present imaginary space. So I got to tell you, the hair on my arms stands up when I read that. Our minds are spatial molds that, when filled, present physical space. So when there are physical objects, the thing that we call space seems to us like physical space. When there's nothing physical in it, then it becomes imaginary space. Just like when you close your eyes. It's like when I imagine myself floating out in space somewhere, um, deep, deep, deep in space, maybe so far away that I can't even see starlight. It's just pitch black and nothing is there. It kind of reminds me of being in the float tank. And I close my eyes and I'm, and I'm in this world of my imagination. And I open my eyes and there's no difference. That's what it's like in the float tank, by the way. And that, and that, I think, is the point he's making. It's like physical space and imaginary space aren't different. But when there are physical things present, we, we, we interpret the, the space to be physical. And when there's nothing present, we interpret that space to be mental or imaginary. Isn't that amazing? It's like if you close your eyes. If you close your eyes and you're, and you're swimming in this world of imagination and the things that you're imagining become physically real, then that space you're in transforms into physical space. It's no longer imaginary. Now you're, now you're in a real place with real things, right? It's just the flip of a switch. So that's, that's really, really interesting and mind-bendy and improvable probably, but really, really interesting. And what it's telling us is that there is no difference between the infinite expanse of space-time and the infinite realm of imagination, and that those spaces, which seem to us to be internal and external and somehow different, may not be. It may just be different ways of looking at the same thing. That's interesting. All right, so how can we explain this spatial um, simultaneity? Um, remember, if if the imaginary space and the physical space are the same, how do we explain that? And he says, this problem is a specific incidence of the more general mind-matter or hard problem of consciousness. Exactly, exactly. He says, it is a problem that requires novel, radical approaches for its solution. So how can physical space and mental or imaginary space be the same? Dr. Schurstedt-Hughes says, one such solution expands the concept of space. So that's what we're going to do next. Now we're into the real hippy-dippy speculative stuff. In this section I call, More Broad Smithy's Theory. Because what the theory we're going to be describing came from those, those, three, those three individuals. More Broad, and Smithy's. All right. C.D. Broad proposes that the triangle one imagines and the correlated brain patterns could relate as real spaces within a greater space that encompasses them both. Now, by greater space is meant one with more dimensions. As an example, a space deeper than depth, one that unifies the physical with the mental. So that's interesting. Now we're talking about dimensionality. And remember, that was something that I think it was Kant that said a little bit earlier, uh, that if there are more dimensions than we uh, than we are you know f physically able to kind of uh, distinguish, if there are more more going on than what we're aware of, that one of those dimensions must be the realm of the spirit. 
So you remember that that, that was said a little bit earlier. And we're going to kind of get into that. All right, so it might be that the imaginary space and the physical space are both subsumed by a greater space. And by greater space, he means a space with higher dimensions. So imagine, again, the cartoon you have on the piece of paper, that's a two-dimensional space that exists within a three-dimensional space that's our world. So imagine that. You have a two-dimensional space inside of a three-dimensional space, maybe a three-dimensional space inside of a four-dimensional space, something like that. So it's one big space seen from different angles, different perspectives. And by that, I mean different different levels of dimensionality. Ooh, buddy. Okay. And then he, um, he makes a distinction here that, uh, that any space with more than three dimensions, we're just going to refer to that as a hyperspace. So that's where that word comes from, hyperspace. All right, so Oxford philosopher H.H. H. Price who incidentally was one of the first philosophers to write on the mescaline experience. In his book, The Enchiridion Metaphysicum, 1671, he writes this, Besides the three dimensions, which are filled with all extended material things, a fourth must be admitted, with which coincides the spirit. A century later, Immanuel Kant considers hyperspace, and he, and he says this, If it is possible that there are extensions of different dimensions then it is also very probable that God has really produced them. Such spaces would not belong to our world at all, but would constitute their own worlds. All right, so I jumped the gun on that Kant quote because there it was. Uh, but the idea here is, is that if there were other dimensions, Kant's saying that if it's possible for them, for them to exist, then they probably do, which is interesting. Um, you know, that, that kind of ties back to the, imagining the world is infinite. So if it's infinite, then any any possible occurrence will, will occur at some point. That, 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 sort of a, that sort of logic is at play. Um, so if, if other dimensions are possible, then they must already exist. And if they do exist, experiencing those dimensions would be like experiencing an entirely different world. And I think we can agree with that. If we were able to stick our heads out into an, another dimension, it would be like, even if we're looking at, again, like the fly sitting on the ham sandwich, even if we're looking at the same thing that we were looking at a second ago, it would look like an entirely different world. All right, he goes on. In, eight, in 1783, Kant maintained that space has three dimensions. It cannot at all be shown from concepts, but rests immediately on intuition. So that's interesting. Kant's saying that the fact that our reality is three-dimensional isn't something that can be proved from concepts. It's something that we understand to be true, but through our intuition, not through any physical facts of the world exactly, but through the exercise of our mind, are we able to kind of understand the three dimensions that we exist in? And then it goes on, it says, in Kant's later transcendental idealism, he says space is not real but a mere a human mode of perception through which we frame the real noumenal world. So that's very much like we were talking about before about um, molds. Space and time are like molds um, through which we kind of filter our perception. Now, so now he's going to give us a whole series of data points, and I think they're really interesting. So he says, mathematician George Ryman discovered that spaces of any number of dimensions, we'll call them n-dimensional spaces, were not contradictory, but in fact intelligible and systematically congruent. What does that mean? So this, 
this very bright uh, mathematician proved that even though we seem to exist in a three or maybe four dimensional space, that um, it's physically possible for space to be any number of dimensions and that all the mathematics, all the physics allows for it. So it's possible that there are an infinite number of dimensions and nothing about what we know about math or physics or logic would, um, would say that, that, that that's not a possibility. That's what George Ryman discovered. Then another famous uh, mathematician, Gauss, he shows that curvature can be realized internally rather than externally. And this is going to become important in a, in a bit, but this goes back to Euclidean geometry and, uh, and, and space and the, the geometry of space. Um, so let, let me just push through and this will make sense. He says, Ryman developed a method by which curvature could be determined from any n-dimensional space. For example, a 3D space can be eternally measured to determine curvature in a fourth dimension. All right, so this is getting technical, but what I want to say here is that it's possible, this is what Ryman discovered, it's possible that if you are existing in a three-dimensional space, it's possible for you to take measurements that will prove whether greater dimensions other than the three that, you, that you're existing within exist. You can literally measure to find evidence of the existence of higher dimensions above the ones that you're immediately that are immediately accessible to you, and that's mathematically possible. So Ryman introduces the auxiliary concept of curvature of space, and his ultimate end was to simplify the laws of nature by reducing force to curvature. And if that's sounding familiar, it's because it's it's going to link right back to Einstein. So let me get there. Einstein fulfilled Ryman's quest by using higher dimensions to reduce the force of gravity to space-time curvature. So not only can we, can we measure the fact that there's uh, higher dimensions um, that exist beyond the three that we're accustomed to, not only can we measure that so we have evidence that they exist, uh, but we can also explain away things that we, uh, using that knowledge that we maybe couldn't explain very well before, like gravity. You know, there's this mysterious force that pushes and pulls f uh, objects. What is that? Well, Einstein proved it wasn't a force at all. It was just the curvature of space-time. It, it it's just the impact of higher dimensions on our reality. That's what we're experiencing. <sighs> Listen to that. Gravity. The thing that we experience when we fall out of a tree and, and you know, hurt ourselves. That. That is the recognition of, of, that's the recognition of higher dimensions than what we, what we're, what's accessible to us that are acting upon our world. So that's super mysterious and interesting. So picture... 2D, be 2D beings approaching a spike that stretches their plane upwards as we 3D humans see it externally. Though the steep curvature is imperceptible to the 2D, 2D beings, they will nonetheless feel the curvature as force. So this is an illustration of a 2D world. And the perspective of the 2D beings in the world encountering something that, again, represents curvature, like a higher dimension, um, they would feel 
the force of that, you know, let's say walking up that steep curve would take more energy than walking, you know, walking across a straight, a straight line, let's say. They would feel and notice something's different here. And what they're feeling and noticing is invisible to them. It doesn't mean it's not real. It's the effect of a higher dimension. Oh my God, that's amazing. All right, so let's keep going. He says, the curved extra distance is felt as a resistance force rather than seen as an increased space. Exactly. So, so you, can, you can unravel some mysteries, maybe, by assuming higher dimensionality. So let's see where this goes. He says, yet there are perhaps further developments to be made in this field relating extra-dimensional curvature to qualia, thereby correlating not just force to geometry, but qualia too. That is to say that a relation of n-dimensional space and sentience is here suggested. So again, hair standing up on my arms. I highlighted that last sentence. That is to say that a relation of n-dimensional space and sentience is here suggested. So Dr. Shirsted Hughes, uh, while we're doing this wild speculation chapter, he's saying that it's possible space and time, excuse me, space and sentience are one thing somehow. So this is interesting. I want to, I want to push through this, but I, I guess what I want to say here is that when we're describing gravity as something that is felt and what it really is, what we're feeling is not a mysterious force, but just a, another dimension acting, acting upon our own that <laughs> Again, I have to remember what we said many times in this episode already, that we have to separate this, the, the act of sensing from, that, from what's being sensed. And I think that, that's, what ha- that's what happens here because it's invisible. It's like what you're sensing is something from a higher dimension or, or the higher dimension itself is what you're sensing. And, and, you know, if it's gravity that you're sensing and what you're sensing is a push or a feeling of what seems to be a force, a push or a pull, but that's not what it is, only what it seems to be. So we have to be careful not to not to make that um, uh, not to conflate the two, so uh, so I think that's worth repeating. All right, he goes on. He says, John Smithies, a neurophilosopher and associate of Aldous Huxley, provides theories through which we can understand the relation of space to sentience. He proposes sense data are spatial entities distinct from physical objects, and bear both temporal and causal relations and higher dimensional spatial relations to a physical object. Okay, so when we encounter uh, an object, when we have a perception or a sensation of an object, that what we have is... What we have is an experience of the relations, you know, um, including the higher dimensional relations. And so there may be an explanation in higher dimensions to explain all these different types of perception that we talked about uh, at the beginning. So the dimitepsion, the qualia, the sensing, the, the external and internal correlates, all that stuff might be explained, um, you know, partly through our three-dimensional reality and partly through higher dimensions. So what does that mean? He says, this theory offers a contiguous spatial connection between mind and matter. It advances the actuality of a unified space of multiple dimensions, 
which in virtue of all, excuse me, in which all virtual space, which we, we would call mental space, and physical space, which we were calling perceptual space, are cross-sections. Hmm. So again, just like we were talking before about a two-dimensional object inside of a three, or a space inside of a three-dimensional space, inside of a fourth-dimensional space, that that's maybe something like that that we're looking at. That when we say something like mental space uh, or you know physical space, that what we're seeing are simply cross-sections of a higher dimensional space, a greater space. And then he, he has a quote in here by a psychiatrist named Paul Schilder who says, the space in which objects are perceived and the space in which they are imagined are one and the same. That's, ex- that's exactly the, 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 the hippy-dippy, mind-bendy thing we were dealing with earlier. He says, it's not to say that physical space is not real, but rather to say that our access to it is through virtual space, which is three-dimensional. So our access to the objective reality behind our perceptions, uh, it's filtered through our models, the, the things that we said before, they're representational. And how are they represented? In three dimensions. So that's why the world looks and seems like it does to us. But if, in fact, it has greater dimensions than three, then it, it contains more than what we're aware of. It, contain, it is more than what our representation is. That would be a good way of putting it. And he goes on, he says, through a fourth-dimensional perspective, we can see that the mental and the physical can be both fundamental and unified um, in a mind-matter monism. The more broad Smithy's theory is one, albeit radical way, to respond to the mind-matter mystery. It is a radical monism of space and sentience. A radical monism of space and sentience. Whew, buddy. All right, so what I'm, what I'm picturing here, and in my mind this is an image of God, and this is, what's, this is what this last few chapters has painted for me here. It is... Well, it's, it's more conceptual than visual. I'm trying very, very hard to visualize it, and, I'm, and it's nothing really coming to me, but it's like a transforming shape that's made of an infinite number of dimensions. That's kind of what I'm picturing. And the thing is, that shape is sentient. It's conscious. And this, this is the image of God that comes to my mind after, after going through all of this. And the reason why... The reason why it exists that way, uh, it's like the, the n-dimensional space represents the filter through which consciousness travels um, to become something that can be known to itself. You know, it's a, it, That's the reducing valve that Bergson talked about. Dimensionality is like a game of Plinko. <laughs> if you guys can remember, uh, the price is right. You know, It's like you drop that ball... And it's just going to bounce, bounce around, and and uh, you know, uh, hit hitting things um, here and there, uh, you know, and bouncing around in all different directions before it gets to the bottom. Um, and and every one of those planks it hits on the way down is like a filter, you know, um, space, time, uh, matter, energy. Um, all of these things are these molds or filters that consciousness is going to pass through before it becomes intelligible. And where it becomes intelligible, kind of on the other side, is 
the place that we call being. You know, it's the place that we exist in, what we call reality, the here and now. And it is representational. We have to be careful not to confuse, again, the act of sensing with what's being sensed. You know, it's like ourselves and the world around us are the act of sensing. And what's being sensed is the objective reality, the thing that Spinoza calls God or nature, the thing that Whitehead calls process. It's amazing. Amazing. So how to conclude, how to conclude. Let's do it this way, you guys. We began with an analysis of perception, which breaks down into external sensings of the physical world and the internal perceptions of qualia and non-physical experiences, which Dr. Salt Hughes calls dimitepsion, and Spinoza called intuition. Beyond these, we are left to speculate whether other types of perception exist beyond those familiar to us, and if they might be accessible to us in psychedelic experience. We then analyze space and arrive at an eerily similar conclusion. Space, it seems, also breaks down into external physical space and internal mental space. We already understand ourselves to exist in three dimensions, but are now left to speculate if there might be other dimensions beyond those familiar to us, and if those dimensions might be accessible in psychedelic experience. Even Spinoza speculated that there might be attributes of God beyond those we know ourselves to possess, extension and thought. And Sir Humphrey Davy and Albert Einstein emerged to suggest that all this potential, realities, perceptions, and modes of being beyond those we know, might be present and hiding simultaneously. But where and how are they hiding? How are they present and yet not accessible? Perhaps because where they exist is in dimensions of our reality that we cannot perceive. They are there, like 3D you staring out at a 2D cartoon, and to the cartoon you're invisible, intangible, and forever out of reach. This is where Dr. Shirsted Hughes offers what he calls a playful trip of radical speculation through hyperspace. He says... If it is true that there is potentiality laying behind our reality, behind our perceptions and our model of space-time, it might be detectable. Detectable in a way that extra dimensions of reality are detectable. They have been observed and mathematically verified from the inside. We can literally measure the curvature of space-time predicted by Einstein and in so doing glimpse a shadow of a fourth dimension, which acts on us and yet remains forever out of reach. And just as Einstein noted that the feeling of gravitational pull is nothing more than the geometry of space-time, Dr. Shirsted Hughes suggests that we detect the potentiality beyond our three-dimensional existence in exactly the same way, by feeling. What in the world can this mean? It means that when we experience qualia, when we feel what it is like to be a human being, we are detecting something we cannot observe. In feeling, we recognize that we are encountering something of higher dimensionality, 
something that is reality and is not reality all at the same time. As the popular physicist Sean Carroll might say, we are encountering something deeply hidden. Wow. Wow, what an idea. The qualia, which are felt, might be crying out to be recognized, to be acknowledged from a dimension to which we have no direct access. Our subjective inner experience, our consciousness, might be, like gravity, a misunderstood or unknown part of ourselves or part of the greater reality of which we are a part. And wow again that we can reconcile the oneness of mystic intuition with the otherness of material reality by posing a division within. A division that exists in the structure of being itself, in dimensionality. Might it be this dimensionality that Bergson tried to describe as a reducing valve to conscious experience? It is dimensionality that divides consciousness from itself, so it can be self-conscious. The thing that divides the mythological heaven from earth, Tiamat from Apsu, order from chaos, the thing that our stories tell us gives rise to being itself. Okay, Dr. Shirsted Hughes, I'm intrigued. You've got my attention. Now all that's left is one final question. What in the hell is dimensionality? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.